Welcome to the first episode of our podcast. The title of this episode is Justice for Black Lives. I'm your host, Casey Molina. And I'm your host, Abby England. In this episode, we're going to be addressing all things surrounding the Black Lives movement that has been taking our country by storm in the past week, um, including some current uh, news surrounding some of the most recent Mm. deaths by police brutality, also covering some more historical moments that have shaped slavery and the civil rights movement and everything that has led up to this moment regarding Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So let's get right into it. Um, I wanted to start, I guess we both wanted to start by talking about the feeling of the three most recent deaths that have been in the media um, and also kind of talking about Tony McDade and Joyce John Reed, um, two fatalities that I guess have been less public. Okay. Yeah, Abby. So as we both know, um, on May 25th, um, George Floyd was arrested by a police officer in Minneapolis and he was pinned to the ground and unfortunately lost his life, um, after being murdered by, um, officer Chauvin, I believe Mr. Chauvin. And, um, the result of that, of that loss has sparked riots across the country. And now this movement is going global. Um, amazingly, this movement is going global, but uh, it has led a lot of people to, I guess, just be more aware of how police brutality has not really subsided um, in an age as early as, you know, the abolition of slavery, police brutality has been an issue in our country. So since the murder of George Floyd, his killer has been arrested. Um, His original charges were for third degree murder and the charge has now been changed to second degree. And the three other officers that were at the scene um, have also been arrested. And I believe they're being charged with aiding and abetting. Um, But it's, yes. yes. So I know that it's all still up for debate. Um, But nonetheless, the riots are not, not the riots. I prefer to call them protests. The protests are not easing up. And I think that that is a good thing. Yeah, I think people are seeing this as like a first step towards justice. But one, I mean, the case hasn't even come to court yet right um so who knows how it's what the outcome's going to be mm-hmm. and two as we're going to talk about there's so many other cases like this is not an isolated incident by far um and even in you know in terms of historical evidence but also like right now there are several other cases that are still open right. and require right. our fight for their similar hopefully a similar outcome to what's happening with the floyd case right now yeah. It's like a quick background on Brianna Taylor. Um, she was a 26-year-old EMT, and she was uh, in bed with her husband um, when police broke into her home yeah. and, and shot her. And since then, um, the FBI has announced an investigation into the case. But as of now, the police officers who murdered Brianna are still walking free um, and have not been convicted of anything. Right. So this was also a case that I feel like didn't get as much momentum, including some of the other cases, didn't get as much momentum until Mm -hmm. the George Floyd case really came to the front. This case also covers a lot of 
um, the issues around no-knock warrants, which some states have in place and some states don't, um, which means that police in some places are allowed to enter homes without knocking. And this, I mean, with Breonna Taylor's case, this was in the middle of the night and they were entering the house trying to find someone who was actually in a different home. Um, I think what's so problematic about this, and I read this recently, that um, Breonna Taylor's boyfriend was actually charged with using a firearm, even though it was registered in his name. He's a registered firearm holder. Um, The law states that you have a right to protect yourself um, in your residence with a firearm. And I believe he's still in custody. I'm not sure what the update is on that, but I know he had been taken into custody And I think he's still awaiting trial for that, even though everything he did, the legality of everything he did is completely allowed. A few days ago, the charges against him have been dropped. Okay, so that's good to hear. But it is you're right. It's shocking to hear that he was charged. And in the fact that he was using his firearm to defend himself and he thought someone was breaking into when someone was breaking into his home in the middle of the night. Yeah. So another case that is on the forefront right now is um, the killing of Ahmad Arbery, who was killed on February 23rd. Um, and there was a video that surfaced in early May. There was a cell phone video specifically yeah. that surfaced that basically showed the evidence of these two men, um, a man, a former police officer, I believe, and his yeah. son who followed Ahmad, who was running, um, through a neighborhood um, and then pulled over and basically cornered him Mm -hmm. um, and killed him. So those men were walking free up until two days after that cell phone video. It blows my mind. um, Surfaced. Yeah. The fact that they were walking free for so long is just blows my mind. Um, So they were charged on May 7th. And... Uh, something that is still going on with this case that people are hoping to change uh, is mm-hmm. the fact that the district in- attorneys involved in Maude Arbery's case have basically been mishandling the entire situation. Wow. Um, there's one specific DA um, of the two that are involved that has a known history of mishandling cases. Okay. Um, and purposely not prosecuting um, police officers that you know they spend time with that they know on a personal level and mm-hmm. in that case basically giving them free rides so people are not comfortable with Arbery's case being held in these DA's hands right. so that's one move towards justice that still is being I think fought for yeah. Um, yeah. In, in terms of his case yeah Tony McDade was actually shot two days after Floyd's death And what happened was some cops were called to a scene and Tony McDade was there uh, and was asked to stop moving. And when he stopped moving, they opened fire on him Mm -hmm. after he had done exactly what they told him Mm -hmm. to do. And the interesting part about this case is that there's a Florida law that allows the police officers involved in shootings to remain unnamed. Wow. Um, so the cop is still anonymous and the department is basically protecting him. Mm. They're saying that they're running an internal investigation on the event, but they're also saying that the cop 
specifically followed all the protocols, the way that the department is protecting the cop. And it also at the same time feels like not giving McDade the justice of a like true investigation is really upsetting about this case to me. Yeah. And I, I think the reality is that in so many of these scenarios, the officers that are supposed to be protecting the lives of citizens are taking them. And so where is the justice when you're supposed to be protecting somebody? It results in an officer murdering someone. And it always comes back to, no, they were following protocol. And now I think social media has brought such a light, like Facebook Live and other live platforms that allow you to stream in real time are bringing light to It's not that people are not following protocol. It's not that they are armed and dangerous. It is the basic fact that police officers are taking advantage of their position of law enforcement and taking people's lives. Very well put. If the same thing was happening and the person, the only difference was that the person was white. Yeah. Like, I wonder what would have happened for Tony McDade and for all of these people and their families who are now suffering because a police officer is breaking things down so simply to, to the color of someone's skin. Right. Yeah. But yeah, speaking on the social media and videos, being able to shed light in a way that hasn't happened historically. Do you want to talk a little bit about yeah. um, Dries John's Reed's case? Yeah. Yeah. So Dries John Reed um, is another black life that was recently taken by police law enforcement Um, and yes, so the Indianapolis police are leading an ongoing investigation, but he was shot and killed by police on Facebook live. And this was in early May. Um, and cops are still debating whether or not he was armed, um, whether or not he shot at the cops while running from his car. And at this time, his family is insisting that he was unarmed. So I guess when you get a police report from law enforcement like this, that blatantly says, he was armed, he shot at us, and you have such contradictory information from another source saying he didn't even have a gun. It's kind of like, I, I, I don't know how, I mean, truthfully, the investigation, as it says, is still ongoing, but I feel like if he had a gun and not having a gun, those are two very different scenarios in which law enforcement would be authorized to use brutal force. And also, how much can that be disputed i mean when they get to the scene like and once they actually reach reed are they aren't they able to check if he was armed exactly like i feel like that's a clear answer um and it's not like the cops are taking notes while they're you know chasing someone exactly whereas he had his camera on and people were watching yeah so yeah and i i think the scary thing is that there is so much debate among these police encounters and black lives was protocol on both sides being followed were police and law enforcement following protocol for arresting someone were the citizens being arrested following protocol for ceasing and desisting upon arrest and in so many cases it just leaves so much to gray area Um, and I think that again going back to the social media aspect that we were talking about it's all on camera now. There's, we're getting to a point in our nation's history where it's no longer up for dispute what happened when the evidence is on camera. This reminds me so much of 
the Rodney King mm-hmm. um, protests, because in his case, his lawyers were saying, you know, this has been happening for so long. This has been happening forever. The only difference now is that we have the proof. Exactly. We have the visual proof. Exactly. Um, yeah. So let's talk about the history of Rodney King. Um, yeah. I think this is very important to talk about because in having these conversations about the protests and in some cases, the riots that are now going on in the United States, I find myself having these conversations with my parents and my older family members in the generation before me. And so many of them are saying, oh, this happened with Rodney King. And I think that not enough of us know our history in order to know how this ends and not enough of us know our history in order to change the path before we basically put ourselves right back in the cycle that we've done many times before. Okay, so in March of 1991, Rodney King was violently beaten by police officers, resulting in a broken leg, various cuts and bruises, and a burn on his body from over 50,000 volts from a stun gun. The prosecutor that had a history of not trying cases fairly was on Rodney King's case, and that led to a lot of unrest in the Black community. But the four police officers that were responsible for the police brutality and acted on Rodney King, although they were charged with using excessive force, three of them were acquitted. And this is what sparked the rioting in Los Angeles in 1992. And this rioting lasted for six days. And so kind of what we're seeing now, how the National Guard is being deployed in certain communities around the United States right now, something very similar happened um, historically in, during the Rodney King riots. The California Army National Guard, the U.S. Army, and the U.S. Marine Corps were deployed as well to reestablish control of these communities. Nice. Um, and although the outcome of Rodney King's case was that two of the four guards were found guilty and sentenced to prison terms, um, you know, as you and I both know, we're still in the midst of figuring out how this ends. And so I think what's so important about this is that what sparked the riots, as you and I had talked about, were kind of a multitude of different factors, being that other people had been tried by this prosecuting attorney and realized that their cases were not fairly tried. And so I think the fear now is, will these protests make a difference? Will these protests be able to bring about change and set the precedents for establishing consequences for law enforcement when blatant police brutality is being used, resulting in the loss of countless Black lives. Right. And what what systematic changes can be made Mm -hmm. to our current police system to hold people fully accountable, to have more things that we are seeing as, I mean, obviously hard to watch but also Mm. allowing more fair and just cases to have evidence yeah like things like body cams yeah yeah I think that's the hardest part about all of this is like finding the ending um of course I don't I don't think it the fight ever really ends but in terms of finding an outcome that is going to make real change so that this doesn't just repeat itself in another 30 years exactly and I think You know, 
kind of talking about that. Yeah. So that we don't get locked back into this cycle where in another 30 years, we're right back in the same place. And the next generation is equally as shocked as I feel like, you know, the millennial and Gen Z generations are at what's going on right now and how racism is still permitted in this country. I think it's important to talk about the history of the police force um, and where this comes from. Yeah, so let's let's go all the way back to the beginning, um, halfway the beginning. Okay, so slavery was abolished in 1865, of course, with the 13th Amendment. Um, but with the implementation of Jim Crow laws and enforced segregation in the South, Black people continued to be disenfranchised and have limited constitutional rights. So we just briefly talked about um, Abraham Lincoln's movement. And like you said, he's known as the Grand Emancipator. Um, and how the reality is that he essentially tried to start a movement to uproot Black lives once again and just deposit them somewhere else to be out of the way and non-problematic. So slavery was abolished in 1865. In 1862, he invited a group of elite freed slaves, like people known as academics, to talk with him and he said like listen um i really appreciate like your help in this fight to help us move forward but i also think that our democracy does not fit with our cultures fitting together like i he basically said yeah he basically was like yeah so i think like maybe a good move would be we send some of you to, he didn't even know then. I think he ended up sending some people to Liberia who like accepted. These I remember, five men didn't accept it. Yeah, but. I remember there was a movement. Yeah, a lot of African Americans, hundreds of years after being in this country that they had been forced to be in under enslavement, were like, okay, we're pretty much done with your services. I guess slavery's illegal now. We'll just put you back in Africa. After, like, yeah. generations of culture and history and language have been uprooted. And, oh, by the way, Africa is not just a country. Like, you can't just go drop everybody off in various regions of Africa. So, right. I don't know if you've been seeing this, but there's been this video circulating on Instagram for the past couple of days that is a really good representation of systemic racism and how it plays out in our country. Um, and I watched it. I believe it was yesterday and I found it incredibly educational because I think in my mind, I know all the facts about how, you know, legislation and our current governmental systems and how overt racism plays a role in black oppression. But I think seeing it from this perspective, you just see it a lot more clearly. I don't know. Have you seen the video? I don't think so. Who is it from? Is it, was it on Instagram? Yeah, it was on Instagram. I have to send you the video. Yeah, please do. That's so interesting because it touches not only on the fact that I think some people only see the system as, oh, people are, you know, a few steps behind when they start right. out. That doesn't mean they can't catch up. Right. It's not just that. Like, I think also in a way, the system is just entirely working against people. Yeah. So not, I'm trying to think of there's like an analogy of like a race going on. Um, and that black people have to start way Basically, back. White people get a head start. Yeah. Yes. So not only are they starting behind, but they're not getting any assistance in moving forward at all. 
and they're also having additional things put on them and those weights can i mean right that could represent like, so many, that could represent psychological barriers yes. from i mean not only the, the not own, getting like assistance the, but like needing resistance as well yeah exactly from my own perspective on this that being that you know systemic racism operates in multiple ways i mm-hmm. think of it as the representation that your life from the time that you're born to the time that you are 18 and you have the opportunity or the option to attend school or work, um, get higher education, whatever you may choose, it's all dictated by the steps that come before it. And so when I think of systemic racism in our country and, you know, how it takes the form of schools being underfunded, housing developments being underfunded, access to healthy foods and healthcare, Black people literally start from ground negative 100. And it is impossible to catch up. And so kind of what you were saying, they meet, we meet so much resistance as well as just not having any assistance in the communities that need it and any, I guess, awareness of what is going on in order to target it from the root. And I think that that's what's so dangerous about systematic racism is that it's also tied in with cyclical poverty. And so it's like, where do you break into that cycle and where do you really start to break that down and break the cycle? I don't know. Right. Because there are so many places where the cycle is being restarted and continued and they're in all different aspects of life. So how can the cycle be intervened and then stopped and reversed? Yeah. I think, you know, even in my own life, I've had to come to terms with, as a Black woman, I have been afforded many privileges and many opportunities that have sometimes allowed me to forget the systematic oppression at play. But it's, right. it's still there in, you know, my family that, does not live in the same affluent communities as I live in. It's still there in the subtle racism that I experience in my life. And back to the term that we're trying to think of, I do feel that weight every day of thinking, you know, no matter what I've achieved or no matter what I've done, I will still be considered a black woman in this society. It's a lot. It's a lot to unpack. It is the generations before us having different views on things, but also how much really has changed, Mm -hmm. like what truth is there in the realities that older generations feel are at play? How much have things changed? Yeah. So going into segregation laws that were put in place after the 1954 case of Brown versus, versus the Board of Education, segregation was officially outlawed. Um, mm-hmm. in the school system. And then in 1964, obviously, with the passing of the Civil Rights Acts, discrimination on basis of race and color, religion, and sex was all outlawed, which allowed integration of employment and public accommodations. But as we all know, that when political systems are put in place and marginalized groups, and when those systems are altered, um, Many people are not going to accept those alterations, Mm -hmm. starting with the school desegregation. The thought that when that ruling was made, so many 
states, so many mayors, I mean, other than individuals, but individuals that were in charge of governments, of local and even state governments, were saying that's not going to happen here. And we're refusing to accept the law. And the amount of time that that took, the amount of brave young Black children that had to be subject to abuse. um, Yeah, to attend school. And just overt racism. Yeah. Yeah. And I was reading something interesting the other day that was just talking about, it was specifically targeted, the piece was targeted at white people. And it was saying to try and shift your perspective for a minute and think about the number of black students that were bused miles away from their homes every day Mm -hmm. to attend a predominant an all white school. And it was their job to desegregate the school and to think about in relation to that, how many times white students were asked to be bused miles away to an all black school. And it was the white students job to desegregate the school that never happened not once did that happen yeah not once was a little white girl or a little white boy asked to do that yeah that was always put on the black community's shoulders yeah and I I think that draws an interesting parallel to a lot of conversation that's been going on in social media right now where a lot of people in the black community and myself included have had to step up and say, it is not my job to educate my white counterparts at how, about how racism is at play in my life. And I think that, you know, the reality is just like a fatigue. You're just tired after a while when the burden has always been placed on the black community to solve this problem that they did not create and are just continually oppressed by. So kind of talking about that and going back to what you were saying earlier, I think that the assumption historically has always been that we have had the legislative power to abolish these political systems that have legally held black people and minority people below the thumb. But now that they're abolished, that doesn't mean that the ideology goes away with it. And so I think now people are realizing that the bigger challenge is education and people knowing why these systems were put in place and continually educating themselves about the plight of black people in the United States. I think it's very easy to say, I'm not racist. I accept everyone. I love everyone. I don't see color. But as you know, there's like this famous saying going on right now. It's like, that is not the goal. The goal is to educate yourself and speak up for your black counterpart that continually has a suppressed voice in society. Yeah, exactly. I think like a very important message for my white friends is I really challenge you to go outside of your comfort zone and to find resources that you are not normally finding and to listen to other people and take just take actual time out of your day to educate yourself because there there really is no change that's going to go on unless people are doing that and taking time. Not just the people who have actually lived this history and have spent their whole lives studying this history and who are now, you know, suffering more than any of us. Like black people have been going through this their entire lives and for hundreds of years. Yeah. So now it is our turn as white people to take that step and it's going to be hard, but it's supposed to be hard. Yeah. But I've heard a lot of people talking about 
white people getting on social media to talk about how sad they are yeah and to to say I'm crying for these people and I'm so emotionally you know just gripped by this whole situation yeah and I just I don't know I I appreciate people being open and honest but I don't appreciate in a way that feels very insensitive to right. me of a white person saying like, I'm so sad about this. Right, Because the reality um, is that you make it about yourself and not about the movement. People are one uncomfortable because they don't know what to say or how to do it right, which is not an excuse at right. all. But also people are uncomfortable with things not being about them for like the entire time for the past week that you've been on Instagram, it has never been about you. Right. Like, if you're a white person specifically, it's just not about you. And it's not going to be about you for a bit. And you're going to have to deal with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And instead, use your voice to amplify the objective and amplify the black community. And, like, for some people, I think that's so hard to grasp. It's like, but Instagram's here for me. Right, Talk about exactly. Me. And, right, my and my new favorite to-go latte. Yeah. Um, Actually, what are your thoughts on the results of the blackout movement, because I think that there was a lot of confusion about what that movement was supposed to be. And so I guess just for some quick background for those that might be joining in and don't know about the blackout movement on Instagram, there was what day was it? It was on Tuesday. It was on Tuesday. Yeah. yeah. So there was a movement, a social media wide movement started by the music industry that took place this past Tuesday. And I believe it was June 1st. June 2nd. Yes. June 1st or 2nd. June, June 2nd. Okay. June 2nd. It took place on June 2nd. And it was supposed to be a movement of people to black out, quote unquote, their social media feeds. And so a lot of people took this movement very literally and took to their social media feeds to post black boxes on their timelines using the hashtag Black Lives Matter. And so the negative repercussions of doing that is that using the Black Lives Matter hashtag collects a ton of content together that currently is engaging people in political conversations about what's going on. It's providing resources um, and safety to protesters as they're out in the streets experiencing um, violence from law enforcement um, and sharing resources in general about how you can support the movement and the community. And so when all of these people took to social media to literally post a black box and check a box I felt a way about that. And so I guess I'm curious as to how you felt about that, because I feel like the intent was to, like you were saying earlier, amplify black voices. And a lot of people took that opportunity to check a box and say, see, I'm not racist. I posted a black box. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be honest. I got on in the morning. And so this was before people were like, don't do that. Yeah. Like, what are yeah. you doing? Um, but I got on in the morning and as soon as I saw black boxes, I was kind of just like, what the hell is yeah. this? Yeah. Because either way, people are showing solidarity by sharing stuff on their feed and by sharing educational resources. So why is showing literally no <laughs> educational information showing solidarity more than showing actual right. information? I was kind of just like, I'm not going to get involved. The people who I saw had posted it had posted Blackout Tuesday. Yeah. So technically that was the right hashtag. But even then I was like, okay, this really right. isn't helping me right. anyway. And then later in the day, you know, a couple hours later, people being like, take down your shit because it literally is. I mean, I know I'm not sure about 
if it was just on Instagram and if this was happening on mm. other social yeah, media, sure. but I know that certain algorithms on other social media were basically combining the bla- the hashtags of Black Lives Matter and Blackout Tuesday, oh. which meant that people who were getting on Black Lives Matter, even if you were posting the picture with Blackout Tuesday as the caption, mm-hmm. were only getting the black squares. Yeah. And sure enough, when I went on to the Black Lives Matter hashtag, it, half of the boxes were black. And I was just like, yeah, yeah I was flabbergasted. I feel like there have been incidents like this in the past where people oversimplify and try and make Mm -hmm. I mean obviously this was taken from a completely different industry like this wasn't meant for every day every every individual to do this but I think sometimes on social media the oversimplification of something to just like posting a single photo or posting you know changing your profile picture to one thing it's like that's nice and all, but how much is it actually helping right. more than like you put po- and, and oh, it's just like, yeah, it just pissed me off seeing people who I hadn't seen post at Suddenly all. Suddenly just pop up. Stories or anything. Yeah. Posting that with no, ca- the only thing in the caption for anyone's thing is blackout. Yeah. People aren't even talking about this. Exactly. Issue. So yeah, I kind of hated it to yeah. be honest. I feel bad for the original movement because I'm sure that was, I mean, also, to be honest, I got on um, Fabletics that yeah. day to try and cancel my pre-trial. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of messed up and, like, it's going to end in a couple of days. So I tried to get on yeah. there and cancel it. And the Fabletic, the Fabletics website was shut down and it was doing Blackout wow. Tuesday. It was like, and it had this whole thing listed about how we as a company are supporting this movement. And we hope that you take time during this day to protest or to educate yourself, which is great. Yeah. It, so I was like, oh, that's what this right. movement that's was what it more supposed been. to be. Yeah. 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 And, and I, so yeah. to clarify, yeah, I, when I heard of Blackout Tuesday, I, I didn't look too much into it until, like you said, I got on social media in the morning and my entire feed was completely blacked out. And my immediate knee jerk reaction was like, oh, I need to post a black box. But then I was like, why? Like, what, yeah. what is it for? I don't understand it. And so I kind of held off for most of the day. And then as more and more information was coming out, I was like, okay, the clarity of this movement has been misconstrued. Like it was supposed to be to cease business as usual. The blackout aspect was to stop talking about things that were not amplifying black voices and what's going on in the Black Lives Matter movement right now. And I don't think that whoever started this movement did a really good job (laughs) of allowing people to know that. Nobody let them know that. Yeah, I don't think the message was conveyed well enough. I mean, I didn't even hear about Blackout Tuesday until I saw all those boxes on Tuesday morning. So I and I didn't know about the origin of Blackout Tuesday until I watched a video from someone on Instagram later in the day saying like, this was not the original thing. Right. Like, this is not being played out the way it should have. Yeah. So yeah. it's a reminder to like actually take time to look into what you're doing yeah. before you do it. And if you mess up, delete it. Take exactly. Because it it's not delete. helping. And kind of, okay, so one other thing that I think will segue into our next point. Um, I have also felt a type of way about seeing videos of police officers hugging protesters or holding black children, kissing them or dancing with protesters in the midst of all of this. And I struggle because there's always going to be the argument of um, not all police officers are bad. 
why don't all lives matter things of the sort and I just feel a way about it um, because of the history of where the police force in our country comes from yeah absolutely we should dive into that so yeah so let's talk about how the first publicly funded police was created so In 1838, the first publicly funded police was created in Boston, and they were created with the intent to protect goods while they were in transport. And so we're seeing this continue today from the perspective that slaves were considered capital. And as we were saying earlier, blackness blackness is now politicized. Blackness is now, from a historical perspective, moving from property into humanship, but ultimately were originally considered capital. Um, And so the function of the police force has evolved from a foundation of institutionalized racism because black people were originally considered property in the United States. So I found this really interesting from a podcast, this interesting statistic about how people have always been valued as capital, Mm -hmm. um, how black people have been valued as capital and how, but also how much power they actually had economically Mm -hmm. and why white people were so clung to that. So at the height of slavery, the combined value of all the enslaved workers was more than all of the railroads and factories in the United States combined. Wow. Which is just, I thought was so powerful to hear, like the economic power behind those that were enslaved and had no power. So I just thought that was interesting to like add to the point that, you know, before the police were even instated, like, there was always this idea that black people had a dollar sign above their head. After slavery was abolished, the police joined with the KKK in the South um, in order to continue to enforce slavery. So I see you put in 1704, the Carolina colony officially created their force for slave patrol and other Southern colonies followed suit um, both officially and not officially. And so these groups of armed and mounted white men were literally tasked with chasing down runaway slaves prior to the abolishment of slavery. And then after through official police forces that were Southern racism reincarnate with the Ku Klux Klan. So something that I thought was really shocking that I didn't learn about until I was a junior in college Um, that I feel like should be touched on when we try and celebrate the successes of Black people in the United States, and it's just not, was um, Black Wall Street. And I think in large part, we don't talk about Black Wall Street and what Black Wall Street is because of how it met its horrible end. So a quick history of Black Wall Street um, it was a successful and self-sustained Black community of thriving businesses um, in the early 1900s. And in 1921, we've actually just passed um, the anniversary after the unjust accusation of rape against a Black man who lived in that community. Angry mobs of white people stormed Black Wall Street at the time. Um, and police, instead of coming to the aid of the community, armed the white mob with guns and aided them in burning down the city. And so as a result of this massacre, no white people who aided in the destruction of this property were arrested, but blacks who ran and took cover and were not able to escape to surrounding communities or rebuild their lives were actually detained and put in detention camps. 
on no charges whatsoever. Um, and so there has been no public or official memorial held in Tulsa until 75 years later, which was in 1996. And I just find that heartbreaking. And so as we're kind of questioning and as I'm kind of talking about why it bothers me so much to see these videos that are supposed to be a twist on everything that's going on right now and kind of like a union of law enforcement with the black community, I struggle to that that doesn't bring me peace. It is extremely uncomfortable to me to see a system that is so tactically oppressed, the black community and black people to be playing a part, to be almost acting this part just for, it almost seems to me just, just for the media or just for the time being, because the reality is as we've seen, that's not the work that they're doing. They're not in black communities dancing with black people and kissing black children and also i don't know if some people are fully seeing all of this or not i think on instagram and on twitter it's been pretty clear to me and to other people my age who are mm. active on that social media that a lot of those interactions seem to just be for photo ops because you know hours later during the protests those police officers suddenly become violent and you know are using rubber bullets or tear gassing people I agree. I find that uncomfortable. I think there are better ways to show your solidarity if you're a cop, for one. Yeah. Quit. Um, Take off your uniform and join the protests. That would be so much more powerful to me, although I understand people have jobs and livelihoods. I I think if you are standing with the current system, Mm -hmm. the current police system, um, that there's something wrong with that, honestly. If you're if you're comfortable working for the current police system and not recognizing that these faults need to be changed to save people's lives and to change the current systematic racism mm-hmm. that they are perpetuating, I think I personally think there's something wrong with that. And yeah, that's why I, I don't agree. That's my argument kind of against the, you know, not all cops are bad cops. It's like they're not all bad people, maybe. If you are agreeing to a system that is basically creating yeah. bad cops every day and upholding oppression, then, then yes, you're a part of the problem. Exactly. Um, I think kind of to wind down all of this conversation here, I think you've asked some really good questions just for us to reflect on where we stand in all of this, kind of how we're expressing ourselves, how we've been able to get involved and create allyship. I think those are all things that. I think are just equally as important to talk about in this episode, just as much as the history behind it, which is so important to understand the foundation and where all this comes from and the cycle of history that it seems like we're repeating. But I think ending on a positive note is something that we all need as well. Right. Maybe some action items. And we're going to give you guys some resources Mm -hmm. as well. Some things that we've read and listened to and watched that maybe are some good jumping off points to to get yourself involved and educated in in the movement for me I don't know if it's clear already but I'm white (laughs) um and for I think it's been pretty clear that um for me my main goal in this entire movement is to educate myself first and foremost um so that means buying new books listening to podcasts that I'm I'm getting a lot of my resources from social media um and that is I taking notes on all of that is one way that I've been expressing myself and expressing how I feel that 
some of my, mm. you know, mm-hmm. biases are coming out and how they're changing and also just being yeah. visible as an ally. I mean, obviously to those black people in my life who I want to know mm-hmm. I stand by them and I'm supporting them and doing what I can to support the movement, but also to people, I mean, there are some younger people on like my Instagram, yeah. for example, um, who I know are more conservative and who haven't been uh, speaking. So from their silence, I'm taking that they're probably not part of this movement. Talking about the people in your life that you know and love that you don't agree on yeah. things with or people that you've met in class that you follow each other on social media and you don't interact a ton, but you know that you guys mm-hmm. got along at one point. I want those people to to see where I stand on this and also post things that I hope will encourage them because of the fact that they know me and have cared about me in the past and respect me, hopefully will look into and encourage other people to educate themselves as well. I think all of that's really good. Um, Yes. I am a black woman. I identify as African American (laughs) and Afro Latina. And yeah, I think, you know, it's two sides of the same coin. Um, a lot of what you talk about, Abby, is, yeah, having those tough conversations. And I think I've been doing a lot of the same with friends and family. Um, I've kind of decided my energy has not put me in a place where I can have conversations with people that are blatantly not trying to acknowledge their privilege and are feeling very attacked by what's going on right now. And I think that that's in large part why I decided to stay off of Facebook for so long. And as soon as I stuck my neck out on Facebook, I popped it right back in because I was like, I can't deal with people who are not ready to acknowledge this. And I think also, too, having those tough conversations with friends and family sometimes extend past talking to your white family about these issues. I have had conversations with white family members, and I have had conversations with black family members that are equally as frustrating um, when I have to get into the nitty gritty of how is this different from Rodney King? What is going to happen when all the sensationalism of social media has died down? Are we as a generation going to be able to continue to move this conversation forward um, and really not only get justice, but change the way that business is conducted within the system? Um, And it's tiring. It's tiring to deal with pessimism it's tiring to answer questions of like what makes things different this time. But I think having those conversations are valuable and they need to be had. Absolutely. And along with this, I think we both have agreed. Yeah. You also need to take time away. Yeah. When you need to take time away, you know, fight your battles fearlessly. And then when you feel like your mm-hmm. arguing power has gotten to a point where it's just a little bit worn out, it is like, absolutely yeah. okay that's to a good take reminder for yourself like I think it's hard because you don't want to feel like you're not you know fighting your hardest for the movement and you're not taking enough time to do this or that have hard conversations um but you also yeah. need to recognize that you're a human being so there's a point where your words aren't going to be as strong if you are, yeah. are too tired you're too fatigued yeah and, and that's mentally and physically no, so that's, that's a good reminder, a reminder. I, I need that right now <laughs> transitioning now into <laughs> how we're getting involved so I think like social media obviously is a really easy way to get involved and be outspoken for those that feel 
comfortable with it. I think I'm like a social media activist. Um, but you know, outside of online activism, what are, what are some ways that you've been getting involved, Abby? So one way, and again, this is often through the help of, mm-hmm. of online activists who are sharing resources. Um, one way I've been getting involved is finding a lot of places to donate. Um, and we'll share some yeah. of those resources at the end, but places like the Minnesota Freedom Fund, um, you know, donating, there's a lot of places on, um, mm-hmm. the, on GoFundMe.org. A lot of the families of, um, those who have been murdered have posted GoFundMes where you can support their family. Um, so I've been looking into a lot of those. Um, there's also a lot of mm-hmm. official, um, websites for different organizations that you can donate to. I've been finding petitions and what's great about, um, change.org, which is one mm-hmm. petition site is once you, once you sign one petition that you feel like you agree with, oh, wow. it'll start popping up other, um, petitions that other yeah. people huh, who signed cool. your petition have also signed. Um, so I found that helpful. Yeah. And it's easy. It's like, yeah, you obviously look into the petitions before you sign them, okay. but there's a like one click sign thing where once you see the petition you want, you just click a button and it signs, okay. it has all your information. It just signs up for you. So yeah. that's what I'm no, doing. I think, I think all of that is great. And a lot of my activism has taken place primarily online as I've tried to kind of shed light on organizations that I think are providing a lot, like a lot of education behind this topic, behind systemic racism um, and how to have conversations with your white and black counterparts, how to create allyship. That's been my primary focus is to kind of make my online activism more so about creating allyship. And then when I find things that I think are just really impactful, I've been sharing those things. Um, In addition to that, yeah, I've been signing and sharing petitions um, with my followers and with people that share them with me um, and just kind of reaching out to my friends and family, letting them know where they can sign. I've kind of been trying to find like an intersection of my interest in media and journalism and content creation and social issues and most specifically right now, the Black Lives Matter movement to kind of be active. And, you know, along the way, I do want to attend protests. I do want to do more research on organizations to donate to. And I feel like as as we're going to share some at the end of this, these are some organizations that I've been doing some research on and and that I hope to uh, donate to in the future. Nice. Mm-hmm. Also, Casey, yeah. if you're comfortable sharing, uh, I want to hear how mm-hmm. you're, we've talked a little bit about this, you know, jumping around during the episode, but talking a little bit more about how you're willing to accept support, especially from, yeah. you know, white allies, um, but also from your own yeah. family. and, and Yeah, I, I really like life. this question. And thank you for asking it. Um, I think I just kind of want to start answering this question by talking about the discomfort that I think initially came from a lot of my friend group and a lot of people in my life when these things were happening and people were seeing me share things on social media, kind of expressing like my shock and my anger and just like my personal affectedness by all of this. And I think I shared something on my Instagram story to the effect of um, you know, my, my friends that have not reached out and asked me if I'm okay, or my friends that I have remained silent, like I'm taking notice of you. <laughs> and I think that in a subtle way, it was kind of like opened the floodgates to, 
oh, I didn't even know Casey wanted my support during this time. I didn't even know it was my place to reach out to her during this time. I didn't even know I could do that. Or maybe there was some discomfort that came with broaching an issue of race with a black friend. Um, Whatever it may be, and, and maybe we can talk on this in a second, Abby, but I think that, you know, I am always open to accepting support from my community. Having all this happening and being so directly effective to me as a Black woman, it's like experiencing a loss in my family. And the same way that I would be grieving for that is the same way that I'm grieving now. And truthfully, I just feel really tired and really sad. And I want my friends to feel like they can reach out to me and they can ask me if I'm okay. The same way that they would show up for me in any other way in my life is the same way that I want and expect them to show up for me now. And so I guess, you know, I'm, I'm expressing my need and my want for allyship from my white counterparts and from my white friends or my friends not of color in my life. Um, I, yeah, I want people to reach out and ask me how I'm doing. Yeah. I think maybe there are some people out there who aren't reaching out because they are worried that it's going to be too much, but I think a good, I, for people listening, I think a good, Um, point of reference would be if this is a person that you love and care about if this person is your friend and you speak to them on a regular basis yeah there is no reason for you to not reach out when you know this is you know emotionally tormenting for people and taxing on people and I think the same way that people deal with grief differently is kind of what's going on here right now and it's like some people want to be left alone to grieve and others want to form a support system in a community And if you're not sure where your friend falls in that, I think one of my favorite things, one of my favorite texts to receive is just a text that says, hey, you don't have to respond to this right now. I don't expect you to, but I just want you to know that I'm thinking of you and I hope you're okay. That text goes like a million miles with me. Anytime I receive that, I'm like, thank God I don't have to respond, but like, it's nice to know that this person is thinking of me. So yeah, (laughs) I think if there's any ambiguity there, like reach out. And I think this also kind of connects with talking about Mm -hmm. creating allyship and for white people struggling with the fear of getting something wrong. Like, this is something that I've heard so much from, mm. you know, white people in my life. Um, and I mean, seen it in some people's silence, people who I know, like, yeah. care about the issue, but aren't talking a lot about it. And I think that is because people are so scared of saying the wrong thing. And to my white friends who want to be good allies, who consider themselves progressive, I ask you to swallow your pride yeah. and accept that you're going to get stuff wrong. And that you can't take it personally, but you do mm-hmm. need to hear when you're being wrong and apologize yeah. and move forward and correct yourself. It's okay to be wrong sometimes. That's okay. I mean, I get it. Like, it's part of like the PC movement too of being politically mm-hmm. correct. Like, you want to say things right and you don't want to be offensive and you want to help and you don't want to hurt. Well, you're not going to improve on things yeah. until you realize that you have some things wrong. Like, there's no way to move forward from that unless you acknowledge your faults um, and just know that yeah. that's just part of the process. So I really encourage people to speak up if you want to speak up. You should be speaking up and speak 
honestly and speak your truth, but also yeah. don't give up yeah. when you get something wrong. But yeah, I think to mm-hmm. end this, definitely getting into some resources that we would like to share since we talked about many throughout this podcast would be super helpful. And I just wanted to start out with some social media accounts because these are less accredited ones than like the readings and amazing resources that you've added on here, Abby. So, so really quickly, just some Instagram accounts that I follow that I have found really informational. If anybody wants to go to these and share these on their own platform and on their story, um, there's an Instagram account called Left Northeast. All of the information about the history of police brutality and the police force that I personally spoke on in this podcast was actually gotten from that Instagram account. So I encourage you all to, if you want a refresher about what the Tulsa Race Massacre was and how um, the police force was originally formed, I encourage you to take a look at that account. There's another account um, from an influencer. Her name is Francesca Ramsey. She previously worked on MTV's show Decoded, doing comedic skits about social issues that primarily uh, revolved around race. But she does really great and informational talk pieces about race relations and allyship. Um, So I encourage everybody watching this to definitely go take a look at her page. Yeah, that's awesome. And I can include a couple other people I follow on social media that I have found very helpful and informative. Um, Mm-hmm. in the comments but just off the top of my head mm-hmm. I love um DeRay McKesson who is part of the um, okay. podcast pod save the people um he mm-hmm. has pretty good stories Instagram stories right now oh um I don't know how to pronounce her Instagram handle because it's like there's a period in it but I can spell it out it's s-a dot l-i-i-n-e She's a graphic designer, and she's been making these really oh, great awesome. informational okay. graphic designs that she's been sharing. So okay. I would really recommend her, and I'll put that down in the notes as well. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, to go into some readings, that just the first section is kind of stuff that I've read so far. And mm-hmm. the first one is right Fragi- White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. I would definitely recommend Mm -hmm. this to my white friends more than anyone. It's basically a book that's going to call you out on the ways that you consider yourself progressive, but how you also are still um, not being a successful anti-racist and ways that you can combat that, ways that you can approach that. And just very informational, educational. Um, Citizen by Claudia Rankine. It's a lot of poetry, not mm-hmm. in the t- typical like stanza form that you imagine. Okay. A lot of just pages of paragraphs um, and short essays. And a lot of them are from the perspective of a Black person living in a predominantly mm-hmm. white neighborhood as a Black poet and scholar um, and the everyday yeah small forms of racism that just build up throughout the book and she also does some essays on some mm. specific historical situations and um things yeah, that would go on in media that. that she's interested by so that one's really good yeah yes, really please. good i would recommend okay. i also have a copy if you want me to send it to you i can always do that i actually that haven't read any of those so i need to dive in um i had listed one here that is called racism a very short introduction by ali Ratanzi. And 
uh, when I was in school, I studied international relations as my minor. And in one of my development courses, I bought this book and it is an educational text and it is a little hard to get through from the standpoint that it's not like um, a narrative. It's not really a story or anything like that. But what I really like about it is that it is a very cut and dry guide to where racism began and how it has broken down and unfolded in our society, even as other ethnic groups have been um, introduced. Like it talks about Irish immigration and Italian immigration and how those groups were ultimately muted to be racially white and how um, originally they were considered black in um, the United States and how black evolved from a term that described class into describing color. So I think that it's a really interesting read. Um, it's maybe $7 on Amazon. So it's pretty, pretty cheap. And I actually might go buy another copy for myself and reread it. <laughs> yeah. Well, break the bank either. Um, <laughs> so some podcasts that I would recommend a few of my favorites are, um, pod save the people, which is actually hosted and created by four black activists, um, that report on current news and often are discussing stories that are um, overlooked by mainstream media and just talking about themes that often disproportionately yeah. impact um, black people and people of color. Yes. Um, another one. good one is code switch. And again, the, yeah, they, t- they ha- talk about similar things like pod save the people. They talk about a lot of different, they talk about a lot of different things, but um, they talk about like the shifting and intersecting mm-hmm. themes of, race ethnicity and culture so love that one and the last one is one that i'm only halfway through right now but honestly a lot of the information from it Mm -hmm. i've used in this podcast so Mm -hmm. i would highly highly recommend it's called 1619 it was a short audio series from um i think it's from the new york times and it was posted this past fall um and it regards the long history Mm -hmm. and continuing effects of specifically slavery in america and I mean, there's there's episodes on all different types of things, unfair, unjust healthcare in America, on the or- origin of black music in America, mm. the origin of slavery mm. in America. So that one's really okay. good as well. So we're going to be moving into some movies that we can watch. I think most of these are on Netflix, but there are a couple I see are kind of scattered here and some that I've even put on here that are on YouTube. The first one, I think a lot of people have seen, mm-hmm. and also I think it's being highlighted on Netflix's feed right now yeah. because it keeps popping up for me, but it's called 13th, and it's about basically about the prison system in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and how it's so broken and basically how it's reinforced yeah, reinforcing um, modern-day slavery, racism, and yeah. yeah, when they see us actually kind of connects to the 13th in a way that it shows a lot of that. Um, oppressive prison system and how people get stuck in the system um, but it's generally about it's a mini series from Netflix and it's about um, Central Park Five who were wrongly accused um, yeah. of raping a, a woman in Central Park in 89 like children 13 14 15 16 years old um, getting put into the si- prison yeah. system and not being released from yeah. their crimes until someone came forward years and years later so it's only four episodes, but it's very powerful. Yeah, I actually watched an episode of yeah. When They See Us, and I think that is 
it's very good content for what's going on. Personally, I found the first episode really hard to get through. Um, it like made me physically like sick to my stomach. And so I guess just a trigger warning for people when you watch this, it is really hard to watch as educational as it is it's okay if you can't watch the whole thing but I think if it's affecting you that much there are other ways that you can get that information I had to google all about this case and I learned a lot but eventually I hope to get back to this so that I can actually finish watching it that's a great point Casey thank you for pointing that out I agree yeah Mm -hmm. it's four episodes and I can tell you I watched it recently and yeah I would say that those some of those like triggering images are going to be throughout the four episodes so just prepare yourself and take it slow and if you are finding things difficult you know absolutely there are other ways to educate yourself dear white people have you seen dear white people casey i have Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's pretty good it's a comedy about it follows um a group of black students at an ivy league and it it does a good job, I think, of yes. covering mm-hmm. some more modern forms of racism. Yeah. It covers, like, the nuances of microaggression, which I feel like don't get talked about a lot. We oftentimes talk about full-blown racism and not enough about microaggressions. And so I feel like I'm not giving too much away. But it, it kind of, like, explores, like, dynamic racial identities, um, being multiracial, Um, interracial dating and those are all things that I think are so relevant to our society because you know a lot of us are not overtly racist but there are still like microaggressive things that come up in our culture even as young young people that we have to address and that we have to challenge ourselves to combat like we are now yes absolutely Um, yeah it covers a lot of different forms of racism so that's a really good one so the next one is la 92 and this one is a national geographic Mm. documentary Mm -hmm. about the rodney king riots that we talked about um and it's really powerful it only uses clips from um news and from videos from the time so it doesn't there's no narrator the only narrators are actual voices from the time la 92 is actually really hard to watch it's very graphic especially from about a third of the way in onward there's a lot of footage of violence um of looting of arson i think of all of the resources that i've been watching and consuming recently this is probably the most difficult to get through so just like we said with when they see us it's okay if you really aren't comfortable watching the footage. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Just use other resources to educate yourself so we can learn about and better understand our history. Yeah. I feel like the Rachel Divide documentary um, dives into race and certain aspects of race and makes you question a lot, really, like, what is race and how do we apply it? Um, so I definitely recommend that to people. Um, but she was a prominent leader in the NAACP community, Um, And she passed as a black woman for many years before it came out that she was actually a white woman. Um, And then some that are on YouTube, there's short documentary films on YouTube. Um, The first one is You Can't Touch My Hair. So it's a part one on YouTube. And I watched this a few years ago. And I think it just gives a really good outline of, again, how a black woman's hair is politicized in the United States. 
Um, and a lot of people view black hair as this enigma. And so I thought this was a really good um, short film that dove into that topic. And Elle, Elle Magazine has a YouTube channel. They produced a similar documentary on braids and appropriation in America. And I'm sure, as you know, Abby, that cultural appropriation, especially with cornrows in the United States, is a huge thing right now. And this documentary talks about that um, and talks about the history of hair and hairstyles in general. So I I found, yeah, I found both of those very helpful. Finally, we want to recommend a few organizations that you can donate to. The first one that people have been mentioning a lot um, is Minnesota Freedom Fund, which um, in general, they pay bail for uh, immigrants um, and for people from low income um, communities that just otherwise can't afford to pay bail. So in general, Mm -hmm. they're a great organization to support, but especially now with protests going on um, in Minnesota, they're a good one. Um, The George Floyd Memorial Fund, in addition to any other funds that you can find for other um, grieving families. Um, The NAACP Legal Defense Fund, they have always helped support racial justice. um, And especially now we need to help support anyone that has power in the legal system. and can help with that they also do a lot of advocacy work and the last one i would recommend is looking into the city nearest you a lot of cities have organizations right now that are accepting donations to help people pay bail um specifically people that are protesting and getting arrested at these protests there are funds for that for a lot of cities right now i don't think dc has one um, cause okay. I was looking into that because Casey and I are both from Northern Virginia. Yeah. Um, but there, I mean, if you're near New York, if you're near Chicago, LA, all, all of those big cities have, um, organizations that you can donate to. Yeah. Um, one that I recommend, I, I've been looking at and doing a little bit of research on this one. I recommend this one as a platform to donate if you so choose, if this is the direction that you'd like to take with your activism, but also in general, just to educate. Um, So there's an organization called Campaign Zero, and it's an initiative which has researched um, policy solutions that can end police brutality. A lot of it is just talking about advocacy in communities, ways that we can defund the police and reallocate those resources to other communities. And of course, there is the option to donate to this nonprofit. I've been using the website as a really good resource. So I encourage you to look into it and kind of explore the full depth of what this campaign entails before you donate. Um, But I think that it's a really good take on a policy solution to police brutality being to Uh, reallocate resources from police systems into black communities if you are in a situation where you feel like you can't donate there are channels on youtube that are uploading um, long videos that you can watch or you can also just leave on throughout the day while you're doing things that will use your ad revenue um, to donate to some of these funds go on youtube or google you know Black Lives Matter YouTube ad donations. Um, yeah. And I'm sure you can find some of those videos. Yeah. And be sure to not click through the ads. Like, go through the prompts. Yeah. Listen to the whole video. Don't skip around yep. if yeah, you do choose to, to go that route. Yeah. Also, if you do that, um, don't mute 
your tab that you're on like Uh, you can if you have watched the video now you're just letting it replay a few times you can turn down the volume on your computer but do not like mute the actual tab you're on because then that means that they're not going to be um giving your ad sense so yeah if that makes sense Um, it's crazy all the information they have nowadays (laughs) yeah i know thank you guys for listening to this episode We touched on all things police brutality, the history of racism and segregation in the United States, and ways that we can create allyship in our communities and amidst our family and friend groups. Yeah. Abby, how do you how do you feel like this this went? (laughs) Yeah, I think it, it went well. I'm so glad that we could have this conversation and I'm excited to share some of that history and research that we did with other people and some of those resources. So Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening and everything that we talked about in this episode will be linked down in the notes in the description and look forward to upcoming podcast episodes from us and please feel free to reach out to us. Our social media will also be linked below. Mm -hmm. I'm your host, Abby England. And I'm your host, Casey Molina. And we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye guys. Bye guys.